Welcome to the Strength Rehab Podcast. Join your hosts, Raul Axmayer and Brandon Parker, as they discuss the latest information regarding the health and fitness industries. Topics include sports performance, physical rehab, and of course, general health. Remember, this is the podcast where science meets practice. So, Elliot, tell us your story, man. Tell us a bit about yourself. So, my name's Elliot Sierra. I am a chiropractor. Uh, my story began in eighth grade in a computer class that we were taking. And the instructor showed us something called the Occupational Outlook Handbook. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. It's like a website, basically, that's like sort of an encyclopedia for employment. And that website, you can order things on several different sort of metrics and hierarchies. And if you go to the medical tab, you can kind of see like all the medical jobs out there, what their median income is, what the description of the job is, so on and so forth. And at that time, I was really big into weightlifting because my dad brought this huge all-in-one machine in our garage and I would work out on that thing all the time. So I knew that number one, I wanted to do something with exercise. And number two, because I'm a uh, second generation American. My parents came over here from Puerto Rico, my dad rather. Uh, the big thing that was pushed is you got to be a doctor or a lawyer. So figure it out between those two. And I wanted to be a doctor. So a doctor that did exercise, I looked in the occupational outlook handbook and I found uh, chiropractic. So I found chiropractic and physical therapy. And for the longest time, I was kind of going back and forth between the two. And it wasn't until I went to my university, University of Iowa, and started doing research, undergraduate research, and met a mentor of mine who was a chiropractor that I really got pushed towards chiropractic. Um, and he had attended Palmer, and I was in Iowa anyways, and there's no real deeply rooted reason why I chose Palmer over anything else. I was just in the area, and he went to Palmer, recommended that education. The rest is sort of history, so that's it. That's it. Are you local to Iowa? Like, how did you end up like going to the University of Iowa? I mean, it seems like, like me, I'm a Floridian, right? So anything yeah. below 70, I freak out. So I was just curious how you ended up there. Yeah, that's a funny story too. So basically, my mom had filled out this application on my behalf. So she got this mail, this piece of mail that was asking uh, – basically me to fill out some basic information about what my interests were from the University of Iowa because I had sent out um, kind of like those email responses of like I was asking for more, more information from the university. So the university reached out again. My mom had filled out this this, this sort of uh, uh, questionnaire for me. And then the University of Iowa sent her back another application. And the application was for this program called the Iowa Biosciences Advantage Program. And this program was designed to essentially breed PhDs. They wanted to introduce students to what study design was and what scientific literature and research was. So all these students basically got into this program and the program would disperse them according to their interests. So my mom literally figured she filed this sheet and was like, okay, he likes exercise. This is his name. Uh, these are his credentials. And these were, this is what his, uh, his grades history looked like. This is how his grades looked. And uh, from that, she came up to me one day, the week after graduating high school, and she goes, hey, uh, I signed you up for this thing. And I said, uh, okay, what, what is it? And she goes, so it's a program. It's a science program. I know you like science. And I was like, this is a great start. I do love science. Where is this going? And she goes, you leave in one week to go to the Iowa Biosciences Advantage program where you will be doing bachelorate research. 
And I said, where is this? And she goes, University of Iowa. And I said, okay, I'm leaving in one week. <laughs> and that was, that was uh, the beginning of my journey. I mean, how did you feel in that moment? I mean, that's you just got completely uprooted, and then you're placed into, I'm assuming, a, a highly challenging program. How how did you feel in the first couple of months being there? It was definitely overwhelming at first because – so I was going back and forth between University of Iowa, NIU, and uh, DePaul, and uh, two of those schools are in Illinois. Only one of them was in Iowa, and I really didn't – visit Iowa. I didn't have any sort of prerequisite information about Iowa. All I saw was what was on brochures. And when I first got there, the program luckily was super in-depth, very immersive. I met the people who became friends throughout my entire career at the University of Iowa. And uh, I was definitely out of sorts, but I spent a lot of time in the lab and I met some really, really good mentors. And I started to love the city more and more. And I started to love the research process more and more. So probably... After the summer, I was pretty well-rooted at the University of Iowa, and I felt pretty comfortable with uh, the university and all the things it had to offer. Where are you located right now? Right now, I'm in uh, Lombard, Illinois, so I'm in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. And And I practice. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to ask if you just set up your clinic or practice, right? Yeah. Yep. So I just set up my clinic. I literally built my desk like... Three weeks ago, I finished building my desk, and 20 minutes later, a patient walked in. So I'm fresh <laughs> off the press. Uh, I work inside of a gym facility, so my office is directly connected to the, like this yoga studio, this really big yoga studio, and right connected to the yoga studio is my office. So you would walk through the yoga studio to get to the gym facility, and it's a full, fully equipped gym, and that's where I do a lot of my patient rehab. You know, so like being like in a program that was heavily – Uh, dedicated towards kind of funneling you into some sort of PhD program and then you going into a profession that, you know, doesn't really rely upon a lot of RCTs, you know, how was that process like going through the schooling, kind of seeing things and, you know, you're like, oh, that's kind of sounds like bullshit, you know, and kind of like, so what what was your thought process going through the the three and what, three and a half years of schooling? And how did you kind of wade through all the controversies of kind of saying, no, this is wrong. I I can't believe you're saying this, you know? Right. Yeah. So I luckily had had that experience with my mentor from the University of Iowa, uh, Dr. Michael Petrie. He was sort of my mentor throughout the research process. And again, he was a chiropractor and he had told me way back when that when you go to chiropractic school, you have to turn off your research brain and turn on your chiropractor brain. And I said, how does that make any sense? And he said, you will understand what I just told you when you get to school. And I said, okay, (laughs) sounds weird, but okay. That's a good, good bit of advice. So when I got to school, that's exactly what happened. Um, There were some classes that were super evidence-based. We had some professors who were actually surprisingly up on the literature. Um, Some professors who really welcomed the challenge. I would raise my hand and be like, uh, you know, disc herniations don't actually do that, or we don't have enough information to concretely say those things. And the professors in some instances would actually welcome that uh, back and forth, which is awesome. Um, Other professors, namely in the technique department, of course, weren't uh, like that, which is okay, I suppose. Um, So there was kind of a healthy mix back and forth between really evidence-based professors and then sort of the traditional chiropractic route. And I felt that I really did have enough professors to foster that curiosity and um, 
sort of push me toward the literature and sort of allow me to flourish and question things and and really try to push me in that aspect. Um, one of them actually works at the VA system right now. His name's Dr. Christopher Rocker. Really, really good guy. Um, was a mentor of mine. Actually helped me get to my current job right now. Um, so Palmer had a healthy mix. I think that a lot of the people who maybe haven't been to Palmer or rely on sort of the dogmatic um, – maybe connotations of Palmer, of its reputation, don't give it enough credit because surprisingly things are changing. And when I first sort of initially got there, I was completely ready for a shitstorm. And as I proceeded through the curriculum, it wasn't that bad. And I did a lot of stuff to sort of insulate myself. So I created an evidence-based club on campus and I tried to meet with as many people who were as evidence-based as possible. And we got together and did journal clubs went out for coffee, did some social stuff. So I tried to sort of create this insulating barrier so that I wouldn't let uh, any dogmatic or crazy beliefs into my inner circle. Uh, I should have went to Palmer, Iowa, dude, because Palmer, Florida is indeed a shit show. I've heard that. It's bad. (laughs) Yeah, I've heard. Now, I I am curious when it comes to, because all three of us are making online content and we were kind of talking about how your latest uh, post had a lot of interaction because you poked the the wrong hornet, the hornet's nest, right? All three of us would agree that, you know, Squat University has some uh, very controversial beliefs when it comes to people that are up to date with the literature, right? But I wanted to maybe pick your brain as to why do you think people that kind of subscribe to an easy explanation has such a cult-like and large following compared to people that are trying to explain like the nuance, right? And people just don't want to hang around for that. Yeah, I think that the reality is that nuance isn't very sexy. And I think that selling a quick fix is like very sexy because a lot of these people say, you know, you've heard it, you've seen it everywhere. The top three exercises for low back pain. It's like, what are you talking about? Like what, what, and under what context, what is this person? Are they an athlete? Are they not? What's their experience with being loaded? Like, what are you talking about? The top three, that doesn't mean anything to me. So I think that a lot of people take this easily digestible material and use it as gospel. And then they go out into the world and then they preach that same message to other people. And then that message gets propagated. And then we have this huge movement where there's an archaic narrative or something that's not so nuanced being spread to everyone in every corner of the world. And I think that to challenge that is not sexy at all. It stops the process. It halts the gears. The machine stops moving and then everyone has to think. And we all know that people don't like to think in the first place. They just want to, ingest this information and then put it to practical use. So we have to stop and think critically about, okay, is this information actually true? What are the methods that I'm using to verify this information? Mm-hmm. That process is, is hard. It's arduous. It's, there's a lot of barriers to entry. You have to have a certain level of prerequisite knowledge to critically appraise research, and you have to be a critical thinker in the first place. And so there's a lot of barriers to that process that I think the general public has some apprehensions to. So that's mm-hmm. why I think that, uh, the simpler messages often catch fire and they, they are propagated easily. Do you find yourself like trying to find that happy medium? Because there's days where I'm like, okay, I would love to talk about this, but it's such a niche topic. And by the time I get my whole point out, it's going to be over th- or 30 seconds, God forbid. Right. And then people's attention spans won't last that long. Do you ever find yourself kind of catering to that type of content where you're like i'm going to try to make this unbelievably simple but it's going to be almost nearly impossible because like you can't have a well-developed point in like a couple of words you know yeah it's funny you say that because uh i think the longest post i've ever made 
was a 10-minute video about the efficacy of spinal surgery for nonspecific low back pain. In that video, I literally did research for like a week to make sure that all my talking points were spot on. And the engagement was very small, number one, because no one wants to sit through a 10-minute video if you're not a clinician or if that isn't your field. Like you just, no one wants to pay attention for that long. Uh, Number two, that topic is very, very niche. And so even if you do want to pay attention for that long, the 10-minute duration is not easily digestible and it's only going to reach a certain demographic, a certain target demographic. Um, I think that I do find myself trying to cut content short and it really starts to cut the legs out of the information and you don't get the full picture and you miss a lot of nuance. And online, if you misrepresent something, even for a fraction of a second, and the population sees it, they're going to take that and they're going to run with it. And now all of a sudden your message is completely skewed off and people can extrapolate from that however they will and then make ideas of you because you probably are only going to have uh, one second or one post to garner an, an idea of who you are as a person, who you are as a clinician, because you're not going to be able to take their information or take their uh, focus rather for that long. So yeah, it's a battle back and forth. Um, and I think that there's definitely a happy medium where you can be provocative enough and um, uh, thorough enough and you can put out good quality information. But I think you have to take into consideration that your feed is sort of like a story and not every post is going to be a hitter. Not every post is going to be this thing where you're dead on all the time. Information is perfect and you hit your target demographic. It's like, Sometimes I'm going to be short and I'm going to put out a meme that's going to make a lot of people mad. Other times I'm going to put out a 10 minute video that's going to make a lot of physicians happy. It's like, and everything in between is what my feed is like. And I'm totally fine with that. What Raul and I always talk about how it's almost aggravating is like you're, you're battling not only like getting people's attentions, but then you're also battling uh, like, you know, computer AI and software of whether or not your post gets seen. And if it does get seen, is it by the right people? And then mm-hmm. it's like, the, you know, the, the wrong people see it and then basically they don't interact with it. And then, boom, it just goes, goes down the gutter and nobody sees it. So, like, you really don't have a lot of uh, things to go off of on whether or not, like, was this good content or people, you know, really jiving with it and xyz so i I always like to hear it from another person like what they go through and what they think about because it's very hard to cater to somebody but also give them good information because Mm -hmm. if you can give information in less than like 150 characters like imagine having a conversation with the doctor and he stayed underneath 150 characters and said all right see you next week you know it would be like whoa what the hell you know so it's it's difficult yeah it's very tough and i think that Yeah, social media comes with a whole host of problems, and then you have this sort of parasocial relationship where people feel like that if you evolve your ideas or if one post is slightly more nuanced and then you you develop this idea that turns into slightly something else than the initial post that you had created, they feel betrayed by you because they feel like they've created this parasocial relationship. You fit into this box. This is your. This is who you are. This is your persona. And if you evolve from that they become not comfortable with that idea. Like I've been wrong multiple times on, you know, publicly on social media. And I've said, your point is noted. I'm going to amend my original belief. And this is now what I believe now. And people just say, uh, oh, you're just copying out or, or uh, how could you not stick to your original guns or, you know, so on and so forth. And I'm like, 
this is science, man. You change as the evidence comes out. People confront me with different things that I've never seen before. I'm only one person and I read maybe five to eight studies a week, which is still a lot if you're reading the whole paper. Mm-hmm. And some people read more than that. And they send me a study that I've never seen before. And that's awesome. I'm more than willing to be wrong. And when that happens, it's just an opportunity for me to grow as a person. So I have no no qualms with that. That's that's how you do it, man. I, I'm so sick of people trying to use, oh, you're copping out or you're not sticking to your guns. Like you don't do that in healthcare. There's no, yeah, exactly. There should be no egos in healthcare. Just do what the evidence says is best to do. Because if you're in that circumstance, you don't give a shit about the doctor's ego. You, you care about getting better, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's like it seems like people are just af- uh, they're just afraid to be wrong, especially in like social media or something. And for being honest, all, many many times we're gonna be wrong just because we don't know better, and we gotta get comfortable with being wrong. Yeah, and there's a lot of times where. Exactly. There's a lot of times where clinicians will comment on my posts and be like, "Hey, I think that you're being a little too harsh on this topic. Maybe." you could have worded this better, just giving you constructive criticism. And I've noticed that as long as people are coming to you in good faith and are saying, Hey, I understand your point here. I understand the message, but I think you could have worded it a little bit less provocatively and maybe have been a little bit more nuanced and therefore a little bit more truthful about what is actually happening here. I'll take that for what it's worth and say, I think you're right. There's a lot of times where people have said that to me where I say, yeah, I could have probably been a little bit more nuanced here. And there's a time and a place for that. If it's a meme post and I'm posting a meme, I'm not going to post uh, you know, thousand ca- character caption, um, which is another reason why people put you in a box and it's very, very difficult to sort of develop over time with your social media profile. Go ahead and throw your mic closer to your face for me. There we go. I'll be able to bump that part up. It, it, okay. just, it got a little low there, but um, yeah, I would hundred percent agree to you, agree with you. I wanted to ask you because Raul and I, you know, we make content and for multiple reasons. Yes. We want people to be, you know, exposed to good information, but you know, there's, there's the, also the other side of things we need to put food on our table, right? We eventually want to start doing seminars. We eventually want to maybe garter potential clients that are in our respective areas. I'm curious as to why you started making content and like, what's the driving force behind it? So I started making content because I felt like I felt like no one was being as forthright as they could be in confronting dogmatic beliefs. Mm-hmm. And I felt like maybe I could create a brand on confronting dogmatic beliefs and challenging those beliefs so that uh, when people hear that I'm a chiropractor or other people are a chiropractor. They don't wince as much as they probably have in the past. So I'm trying to sort of drag us into the 21st century. Um, like a lot of clinicians are obviously the first one who comes to my mind is Aaron Kubal. So I'm trying to do something that's similar to Aaron Kubal. I'm trying to essentially myth bust and build a brand around that sort of movement. Mm-hmm. We need more of it. We honestly do. It just, and I feel like, I find myself doing it all the time because it can get exhausting. You know, you can poke and like you can like good put good information out there without being super confrontational. But as you said, the, the, the more confrontational you are, the more polarizing you are and the more interactions you'll get. So if we are trying to be getting getting a meta impact out there, you need to be polarizing in today's world. It's just like but that's also exhausting because with, yep. you know, differing beliefs, you have to 
you know, have conversations in the comment section, you need to do X, you know, all these things. Right. And it's just, for me, it's just like, sometimes when that you see like that belief and you have to explain yourself, you're like, Oh, you know, (laughs) like here goes the afternoon, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I think that it's, it's annoying that there's this large call to action, especially within chiropractic. I mean, musculoskeletal care as a whole needs to get better, but especially the chiropractic profession, there's a huge call to action that needs to be answered. And I feel like that if you have the opportunity to impact people, even if it's just one person, this is something that I've said to people before, even if I can impact only one person to not have a bad narrative and not be scammed by someone who's pushing an intervention that has not been thoroughly vetted yet, then I already won. Everything else is just a bonus. If I can help one person not get scammed out of $3,600 and not have a prepaid 50 visit care plan, then I already won. It's fine. Everything else that I do from that point on is just icing on top of the cake. That's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah. And, and I think some people, I mean, me and myself included, like when I'm looking at the analytics, I kind of forget that like, you know, even if it's only gets a certain amount of views or interactions, you're still helping that small select group that interacted with you. Um, yep. you kind of get, for me personally, like, you know, I get caught up in the game of, yep. of social media where it's just like, I need more people to see this because I want more people to see this, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But yep. I'm, I'm curious. So, you know, you, you just got your brand spanking new office where you just built your desk and you had your new patient come in 20 minutes later. Uh, yep. tell me a little bit about what's going on in your practice, man. How, how does maybe the, the typical day-to-day interaction with your patients look like? So a lot of my focus is obviously rehab based, um, I do a lot of stuff where I'm trying to collaborate as much as humanly possible with the trainers that we have in the facility. So a model that's, I don't know how big it is out there by you, but a model that's becoming bigger and bigger by me in Chicago, Illinois, especially by uh, the hospitals are doing it more and more. So everyone's, everyone's kind of following suit of what the hospitals are doing now is that the chiropractor is sort of this portal of entry musculoskeletal care provider. And then they get backup from personal trainers or, you know, some hospitals are calling them quote unquote medical trainers. And those people now take over from the chiropractor or the physical therapist and progress that sort of remedial rehabilitation and now really challenge the patient when they're not so fraught with pain, fraught with difficulty. So that's sort of what I'm trying to model my clinic as right now. So people see me if they're going through like an acute flare up or what have you, and then I'll treat them, try to get them better. And I load those patients as much as humanly possible so that when I hand them off to the personal trainer, they actually have some ground to work with and they can really load up those patients. And we we pretty much control all of that conservative care in that one facility. And it's really, really good. And we have a decent referral system as well with a hospital that's like two minutes away from us. So um, it's a perfect opportunity to really make an impact in this, in this growing community. I love that. I absolutely love that. And, and when Ralph and I talk about this all the time where it's just like, the the idea the ideals or the principles behind rehab are very simple and if you have a really sound strength and conditioning background you should be able to put the pieces together to rehab somebody and i love the fact that now you're having quote unquote medical trainers people that know what they're doing with biomechanics and lifting and whatnot that you know you can have they're they're essentially going to probably become the new ca right like i like the idea of that very much so Mm -hmm. And I think you mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago that you are indeed insurance-based, right? Yeah, I am. And right now I'm going through this, 
I'm going through this transition where as my page is picking up a little bit, I am wanting to do a lot more telehealth and I'm trying to figure out how I can implement telehealth. I'm sure you've seen the papers that are coming out now that telehealth is uh, is as impactful as an in-person session with a clinician. And I think that we could really run with that and we could really do some good, especially post pandemic. And I'm trying to figure out how we can implement that. And right now, what we're going to have to do is I'm probably going to have to separate the business that I'm in right now with another business and do an only cash based telehealth sort of thing. Uh, because I could do telehealth, but the insurance side of telehealth is very, very complicated right now. In fact, new codes were just introduced after the pandemic for telehealth. So that system and that whole thing is going to be difficult to get started if, if I'm going to do insurance. So I'll probably just do a completely separate thing, uh, cash-based telehealth. I, I don't know how they're going to work out the insurance-based thing. I mean, like, I feel like with telehealth, the, the biggest commodity is time, right? And and we know with insurance and time, that's they don't mix well at all when it comes to like compensation. So I like your idea of just going cash and just paying per the amount of time you guys visit with each other because you're just spreading a lot of good information and education through that time period. So like, how do you put a dollar sign on, on that other than if you do cash, you know? Yeah, exactly. There's no way to get around that. Unfortunately, I think that us healthcare, that's a conversation for another time. That's a whole nother mess, but us healthcare is not uh, the shining example of what, uh, you know, first world healthcare should be. And I think that that's uh a big problem and I don't think that it's going to get better anytime soon. And I think the only, the only real way to circumvent that and to bring that most value to the patient is going to be through a cash based basis. So. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in the beginning of our chats here, how you kind of take the approach of a Jordan shallow Adam Meekin esque approach to things. Cause being more provocative, get you more attention mm -hmm. uh, and you know, off air, we're talking about how Adam Meekins is going through that back injury. Right. I think yep. that's like, one of the coolest like post series I've ever seen. What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. I think that, I don't know if you're part of any like fate Cairo Facebook groups, but just seeing how polarizing Adam's own rehabilitation has been throughout all these different, you know, little Cairo groups or, or PT groups or rehab groups has been absolutely hilarious. Number one, because you're getting to see these people don't want you to practice what you preach and everyone who's in Adam's comments about, you know, go see a manual therapist or go do this, go do that. It's just crazy to me. It's like, you know who this guy is. You know what his beliefs are. You know that he's going to attempt to rehab himself first. And while I think that there might be some benefit in seeing a healthcare provider outside of yourself because you can't be, you know, perfectly unbiased in that circumstance, uh, I think that it's awesome what Adam is doing. And I think that it gives you a lot of insight of what a expert level clinician would do for one of his patients. He's just doing it for himself. He's practicing what he's preaching. You're getting to see how he's getting better over time, how he's dealing with his radiculopathy. I think that's probably the most uh, awesome thing that we're getting to see is that he's not freaking out about the radiculopathy. He's understanding what his power loss is in that affected limb. He said it's a 50% loss. He's going to keep doing what he's doing he's practicing what he's preaching and he's you know it, it's a perfect example about putting your money where your mouth is i think that what adam is doing is great <laughs> i love the idea of like oh you should be doing xyz xyz and then here he is like recording himself in a bubble bath <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was a great he's great he's awesome oh yeah he's very you know, funny the one thing that 
it seems counterintuitive at first. And I, maybe that's why some be, some people are so fearful. And when it comes to like redicts is like, you know, loading a limb that's 50% at capacity, like that it must be the most scariest thing ever. Luckily I've never had to deal with the true radiculopathy, but I can see why people like definitely catastrophize that per like that predicament. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that the, one of the most impactful things about Adam's video series is that he is he's explaining his rationale throughout this entire process and he's going through with nice little info he couldn't make it any simpler any clearer he's going through with infographics followed by what the literature says and saying that we know that these radiculopathies are spontaneously resolving a lot of the time we know that you know my power loss is just it's to be expected at this point in time there's a small fraction of people who do have this sort of severity of radiculopathy symptoms that I'm having with this power loss, but I can still get better because the more severe the herniation that has a positive prognostic factor with your recovery. And he's, it's, he's just practicing what he's preaching. I couldn't commend Adam enough for sticking to his guns and showing the public that, you know, he's going to do what he's going to do and he's going to get better. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, it has there been like I, being in the VA system, I've been challenged a lot not necessarily with like my beliefs, but just kind of like, I'm a, I'm a very optimistic person and I try to spread my, my high energy into my patients and stuff like that. But when you have people who are dealing with chronic pain, there's not a lot of energy there. Right. So mm-hmm. I was, I was curious, have you ever like encountered a patient interaction where, you know, you just been completely humbled and if so, like, how did it all go down? Yeah, I probably on was that Friday? Maybe I had a very complex patient. She came in with vertigo and it was the first time that I had seen her with vertigo and she was a mess. I told her on a scale of one to 10, what's your severity right now with your vertigo? And she said, if, can I go to 11? Like, can I break the scale? And I said, it's that bad. And she said, absolutely. She sat down, the world was spinning around her and I was just running through things as fast as I could about how can I modify her symptoms in this moment? What makes you better? What makes you worse? And she had gave me the little bit of information in the minute and a half analysis that I was doing with her that lying face down in the dark made her better. And so I literally put some Zen music on my phone, connected it to my Bluetooth speaker, turned off my lights, told her to sit face down on my table. And I left her there for like two minutes. And she goes, I leave the office. I come back two minutes later and I go, how's your vertigo? And she goes, it's completely gone. And I said, oh, awesome. So she sits up and now we start to get into the meat and potatoes about her presentation. I say, what's going on? And she tells me more or less that her life is falling apart. She doesn't talk to her husband. She has no support system. Uh, She owns this business and the business is being heavily affected by post-pandemic numbers. Um, Life is falling apart at the seams. And in that moment, I had to really take her through this process of you need to focus on one thing in particular. Right now, you're here for your health. You're seeing a trainer. We're going to help you with that aspect of your life. Focus on your physical health first, and we'll help you start to integrate all these other aspects of personal care that are going to help you as well. I recommended she go see a uh, counselor, and I gave her the counselor's number. I pretty much tried to cover all my bases in that moment. And I saw her actually over the weekend and she was with a trainer and I asked her how she's doing. And she just thanked me profusely for taking the time to just talk to her 
and just leave the room and leave her in darkness and just take the information that she gave me that benefited her and actually listen to it and have her do that and then come back and then try to tackle everything else that was going on in her life. Um, she thanked me profusely for that. And it made me pretty emotional because she has told me time and again that a lot of healthcare providers don't really listen to her. You know, this, this classic, they only have 10 minutes with her, then they kick her out of the door. And um, yeah, it's very humbling that I could just literally sit her down, face down on my table and listen to her issues. And she feels tremendously better. Uh, yeah, it's incredible. How do you plan on balancing? Because the biggest critique with insurance companies or taking insurance is like you don't have the right that that time frame that you could sit down with them and still make a, a great salary. So how do you plan on making that balance work for you where it's like I'm still going to listen to my patients because that's going to produce the best outcomes, but I still need to get food on my table? Right. So my patient visits right now, I'm at 70 minutes for a new patient exam and 45 for a typical visit. And what I'm doing right now is I'm trying to supplement some of my income by working on personal training programs with the other trainers. So thankfully, I'm in this sort of position where I can really sprawl out into the community, do a lot of things with the personal trainers. And the gym is really the central hub of the town that I'm in mm -hmm. and just super great, energetic trainers, great owners. Um, it's really just the perfect place to be. And so I'm able to put my fingers in a little bit more than probably a typical chiropractor would. Um, and I'm starting to branch out into this sort of personal training rehab space um, along with the uh, personal trainers who are there on staff. So I'm able to kind of supplement um, my patient visits and get additional income with that sort of stream of revenue. I'll tell you what, I, maybe this is also PTs, but I'm, I'm seeing like the, the, the chiropractor is now turning into like a healthcare entrepreneur, you know, like in the sense that like you're seeing so many chiropractors not just have the traditional practice anymore. They're venturing into five, six different businesses that are online related and stuff like that. So I find like, you know, even though like sometimes I do question the fact of why I became a chiropractor, I think the scope is wide enough where it's like, you know, this is pretty dang cool. At least I'll always be able to grind, you know? Yeah, I totally feel that. I, my mentor, Mike Petrie, the guy who really convinced me to go to Palmer, said that if nothing else, the degree will open doors for you. And I've definitely felt that that is the case, despite the lack of maybe um, social prowess that we have. Um, or, you know, um, I think that the degree does open doors. I think that you can do tremendous good by being a chiropractor. I think that you can really flip expectations on their head and do well by your patients by just being a compassionate, empathetic listener and being able to guide your patients towards their health goals. And uh, for me, chiropractic is not going to be the end of my at least academic journey. I'm going to be applying for my master's in pain management in April. And hopefully I'm going to be uh, able to pursue that program. And then after that, we'll kind of see where the wind blows from there. But I think that chiropractic really sort of whets the appetite if you're the type of person who once they are in the door, once they have their foot in the door, you can really just take off. And the entrepreneurial potential behind chiropractic is one of the many reasons why I chose this instead of physical therapy. What's the end goal? I know you're going in for your master's for pain management. Um... Do you think you're going to find more interventions that you might use, or maybe this is just the stepping stone to eventually getting your PhD and maybe teaching one day? What's, what's the goal here? 
So I think that eventually I actually want to start doing seminars okay. and I would like to do chronic pain management seminars for chiropractors and hopefully try and instill a similar sort of message as I do on social media, sort of uh, maybe questioning the efficacy of some things, maybe trying to get chiropractors in front of interventions that I think would be more beneficial uh, the majority of the time, maybe trying to prevent chiropractors from falling into some of the pitfalls of more dogmatic, archaic beliefs, trying Mm -hmm. just to push a different sort of narrative um, to young chiropractors in particular, uh, maybe even before they graduate is what I'm going to try and do. I would love nothing more than to go to a chiropractic school and do a seminar there and try and reach students before they actually go out into the world and try and help their communities. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's sort of my end goal. I'm not sure if I want to teach uh, in you know, formal academic capacity, but I do want to teach in some capacity. Yeah. I feel like anybody that's in this sector of chiropractic where they believe that, you know, education first, communication first, all have like a low key uh, drive or desire to teach. And because I think that's what we're doing, right? We're just, we're, we're teaching people tools to enhance their own lifestyle, you know? So I think like that's maybe we're all just expressing our, our desire to teach through healthcare, you know? Yeah, I feel like that's definitely the case, especially for, like you said, people who are in this sort of niche sort of culture where we really like strength and conditioning and we really like rehabilitation and in that capacity that we act, coaching people is really just teaching people and giving them practical tools to implement what you just taught them. It's just the physical expression of teaching. And I think that people in our space love that more than anything. We know that that's an extremely powerful intervention. And although we may not use, I don't know about you guys, but I don't use my hands as much as the typical chiropractor. And I assume that you don't either. Um, I think that coaching is probably the most important tool that we can implement in our patient care. I think the communication is number one and everything else probably comes second. Mm Mm-hmm. You mentioned that, like, you know, you would like to get information to like Kairos that are before they graduate. And, you know, we can all agree that communication is like one of the most important uh, aspects as being a good clinician. What are some maybe tips that you can come up with that Cairo students could work on to improve their commu- uh, communications prior to getting in front of a natural patient? I think that the number one bit of advice I could give someone is to either shadow as many people as possible so that you can understand what you want your communication style to be and what resonates with you. Or number two, literally just go be a coach. Like if you like exercise, if you like teaching people, those two things are a perfect marriage for coaching. It's not hard to get your certificate for, to be a personal trainer. Um, You should just put in the work, go coach people, see if you like it. And there's no substitute for that experience. So either do that shadowing or go be a coach and you'll find out really what you want your style of communication to be. I like that a lot. I like, cause everyone's just like, and I agree, like this is the type of skill that you just don't read in a book. You, you have to do it and you have to go through those really cringy moments that like, you know, you're about to fall asleep and it just like, wow, I can't believe I said that, or I can't believe that happened. But like, you know, that's how you, you grow from it. And I, I like the idea of, 
coaching because coaching is something that I did it too. Like I, I, same thing with patient interactions. I'll think there's times where I'm laying there. I'm just like, I can't believe I had clients do that exercise off based off of this rationale. You know, like yep. I, I can't even look in the mirror when I'm thinking about those things. Like you disgust yep. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's all part of the process. I think that, I think that at least for me, the students and new grads that I've come across who are coaches are always the best critical thinkers. They can think on the fly. If I say, I need you to regress that movement and I need you to come up with a regression within these constraints, those are the people who are like, oh yeah, no problem. I've Mm -hmm. coached 10 different people who had the same exact issue and I know exactly how to break this exercise down. So the coaches are often, at least in my experience, the best clinicians. And I think that coaching people really gives you the best foundation of how to be really good at rehab. Right. Are, are you currently, so you just got into this new place. What, what is your, your current work schedule schedule look like? Uh, it's 40 hours. I got to make my own schedule. It's uh, Monday and Wednesdays are my heavier days from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. And then okay. Tuesday and Thursdays, I'm 8 to 5 p.m. And then on Fridays, I get out at 3 and weekends, I don't work unless someone has some sort of you know crazy thing or they're just coming into town. And they just want to see me for maybe a, a one-off consultation. Mm-hmm. I you know going into preceptorship next quarter, I was looking at all the hours and like for some reason everyone takes off like twelve to two. I guess like nobody comes in around that time, so that makes sense. But it's just like I don't know. I'm so used to just showing up, going through the day, and then going home. But this weird two-hour gap, like I was literally just gonna probably like sit outside of where i'm working just so i'm not in work but i'm just gonna be like a loser in my car like (laughs) you know just like at least i'm not at work (laughs) yeah i told uh when i was making my my hours i was like i need an hour and a half to work out from 12 to 1 30 and then i will make my work schedule around that hour and a half Uh (laughs) so that was my it was my primary goal i was like i will work whatever other hours you want me to work outside of this hour and a half time frame that's that's what I wish, you know, honestly, that's why I, I was trying to think. I didn't know if I was a meathead, but I'm agree. Like I'm I'm assuming you would all agree with this. It's like if you have that that gap of time where you don't know what to do, the first thing you think of, can I work out in that amount of time? Can I shower? Can I do all these things? And that's yeah. I'm glad I'm not alone on that. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. I'm super lucky because where I'm gonna do the preceptorship next quarter, they're free from eleven AM to two PM. So that's three hours. Oh. I'm going to get a great lift. There's a gym like that's three awesome. minutes away where I have a membership. It's like, oh, yeah. That's a life right there. That's oh, awesome. Yeah. Might buy a squat rack. I, I was looking at it because I'm going home. I'm going to save on some rent. And that's my justification of like, you know what? I would have spent this money. Might as well buy a squat <laughs> rack, right? And then my significant other is like, yeah, where are you going to put it? And it's like, oh, I'll find a place. I'll find a place. <laughs> I love that. I love going on Instagram and seeing people who have their like squat rack in their living room. I'm like, that is dedication. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. I saw this video the other day of this woman. I think she was from the Philippines and she was deadlifting in her kitchen on a, <laughs> on a stack of books, textbooks. And I was yes. like, that is awesome yes more of this this is what i need to be on my feed that's that's great uh, speaking of facebook you ever go on the marketplace you can see everyone's like midlife crisis i saw like a, a whole rogue like starter kit like everything you would need for to have like a solid like gym 
And you can tell it was the wife. The wife was trying to get rid of the husband's <laughs> midlife crisis because it was just so cheap. And like, it was like, all right, but you have to pick it all up, you know, like that type of thing. That's awesome. And I, I, I need a pickup truck or I'm going to get a friend with one. I'll tell you that because I'm, I'm going to start scooping and scoring here. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you guys. Hit us. So I was, who posed this question to me originally? I think it was Dave Edmond from the army. Yeah. He had posed this question, I think publicly on his Instagram stories. And he said, is squat you a net positive or a net negative? And I sat with this question for a whole day before I answered the poll. And I came to the conclusion that I think that squat you is actually, despite everything, a net positive. And I wanted to hear what your guys' thoughts were. Go ahead, Parker. You go first. Yeah, I mean, so I'd, I'll probably be the easier one of the two here. I don't know. I would agree because, like, in order to even understand the the, the topics of what he's saying, you would probably most likely be in that active population or be influenced to go into that population, right? And we're already talking about a niche amount of people already. It's so easy that when they are exercising to kind of sway their opinions, because it's kind of like, oh, are you in pain because of this? Or maybe because of all these other factors, they're much more willing to like listen to you there versus like if they, that guy never existed, the people never exercised, you know what I'm saying? And they're just literally sitting on a couch and they're just like, I don't give a shit anyways. (laughs) You know, it's just like, why are we even having this conversation? So I think he's a net positive because he started the conversation for such a massive platform. All the nuances behind it, yes, could cause damage, but so does like rat rampant sedentary lifestyle. So I guess like, you know, pick, pick your poison almost. I guess that's how I see it. Yep. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I also believe he's a net positive. Um, I do not agree with a lot of what he does and he, the narratives behind it, but I, I still think he's better than 90% of MSK clinicians out there. Um, as I said, I I'm, don't agree with everything, but he still preaches an active lifestyle. Um, and even though he's still very biomedical, he still, I still consider him uh, like a BPS practitioner because he knows he he's posted stuff about stress and all of that stuff. So I do believe he's a net positive, um, but he still posts shit here and there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think he's a net positive. And I think that, like I said earlier, if Aaron and I were to have a discussion, we'd probably agree on 90% of things and dis- disagree vehemently on the last 10%. And I think that that's totally okay because I think that a lot of providers are different and that's what makes us, you know, that's what makes chiropractic and that's what makes musculoskeletal care in general very, very interesting. And I think that as long as someone sees squat use posts and maybe tempers that information with another source of information, mm-hmm. they're going to be okay. So as long as you get squat you, but you get a little bit of Adam Meekins or a little bit of Greg Lehman's movement optimism, you're probably going to be okay. Yeah. And I think that squat use is a pretty good starting point, actually. And I think that a lot of people who are like squat you are decent starting points. I don't know if you've read the book Supple Leopard, uh, mm-hmm. but I think that I, I still recommend that book to people despite some of its you know nocebic connotations. I don't know, and this is something that I've been grappling with and uh, with a lot of people in various group chats. I don't know if you can skip that phase of learning. Like I don't know if you can skip all this sort of biomechanical 
uh, information where you might get swept up in sort of the nocebic phrases or sort of the nocebic language and all those dogmatic beliefs and then refine those beliefs as time goes on. I don't think that you can avoid that sort of process. Um, and so I think the squat is actually a pretty decent starting point. That's a phenomenal point. I do agree with that. I mean, if, if you don't, if you can't look back on the cringiness, that means you didn't grow. Right. And that means like you're in a st- sticking point. So I, I definitely agree with that where it you're going to have to start somewhere and it's always going to look cringy for, for the future self yourself and say, damn, I didn't know what I didn't know. So yeah, I like that. Yeah. I think that that's another point that going back to the nuance factor, uh, I think that a lot of people on social media want to see you disagree with someone else because that information or that sort of interaction is very polarizing and that draw, draws interactions and that's all fine and good. But, and this is something that I'll do later on on my own page, I definitely want to clear the air and say that, hey, everyone who is promoting movement, I agree with to some capacity. And as long as you're pushing that message, all I'm trying to do is to get you to refine your belief a little bit so that you're limiting the amount of nocebic information that you're putting into sort of the information stratosphere. Like, I just want you to maybe clean it up a little bit. And if I can get people to become exposed to that idea of your back's not going to explode when you're under flexion or, uh, you know, you don't have to have perfect form before you actually get underneath the bar. If I can temper people's ideas that they've gotten from squat you, then I think that that's a win, but I don't want them to completely just, you know, disavow squat you. I don't want them. Or I don't need them rather to never listen to those information sources. Again, I just need them to listen to more information sources. Exactly. I like that. You know, so this is going to, I'm asked this now cause I'll forget. And I asked Raul this earlier and I just never followed up on it. What was this whole thing with McGill and saying like, you did this to yourself. Oh, or that something was horrible. Like that? <laughs> I never oh, seen yeah. it. I think he deleted uh, the post actually. So what was it? Basically, someone said it was about Adam Meekins. I don't think it was about Adam Meekins. I think that McGill was just talking about back pain in general. He basically said that if you have back pain, that you behaved your way into getting back pain oh. and that it was sort of your fault that you had that back pain. And he was using that as sort of a shock value communication tool to get people to understand that they needed to help hold themselves accountable for their actions. And that if they wanted to change their, their pain, that they needed to do something about it. And that's how he was sort of spreading that message. But he legit told on air that his cl- that he tells his clients that they deserve the back pain because they sit too much or they do X or Y. So, I mean, that, that's not a great thing to tell a client, especially someone in pain. <laughs> what? Yeah. So it, it, it was bad. Um, and actually, I was speaking with, I'm sure you know who he is, Jacob Harden. He told me that many, many years ago, he went to a, one of McGill's seminars. And he always used to talk about this client interaction that he had on, uh, on a seminar. And it was a guy that was suffering from chronic low back pain. Uh and he got pain, do you know, like the whole camp test where you mm-hmm. flex and rotate. So the guy had pain, like very, very bad pain when he was doing that movement. And he told McGill that if he tried that movement one more time and he felt pain, he wanted to commit suicide. And guess what, what, what McGill made the guy do? He made the guy 
like increase his uh, intra-abdominal pressure, IAP, and do the movement. So I, and obviously it wasn't painful, but I just can't believe how you would make someone do something when he just told you a minute ago that if he felt pain doing this, he would commit suicide. And he, he like worships himself just because he got the guy to do that pain-free. Imagine if the guy felt pain and he committed suicide. Oh and this God. is a real story. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely terrifying. It's bad. Pig cadavers. That's all I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my God. It's, it's weird, too, because I've had, you know, I, I've brought Stu on a virtual lecture to talk to the students at Palmer Davenport. And during that virtual lecture, he was great. And we talked about a lot of different things. And we talked about symptom modification and we talked about some of his work and we talked about uh, biomechanics of lifting. And I am actually very surprised that, you know, he has seemingly become more entrenched in those beliefs over time. Uh, I thought that especially working with someone, you know, Greg Lehman came out of his lab and I thought that being challenged by someone like Greg might have tempered his beliefs um, a little bit or maybe challenged his beliefs a little bit and he would have adopted maybe some new things or refined what he thought in the past. But it seems like at least when he talks with Aaron that it's the same old stuff. And that whole little process is what me and a lot of other people are trying to challenge and that's a very uncomfortable thing to challenge because I hear it every single time that I talk about Stu and any time that I have a contention with what Stu has said, it's he's the number one leading expert in back pain. And I'm like that number one, that doesn't exist. Okay. Because it just doesn't exist. It's not a ranking um, system. <laughs> yeah. That ranking system is not, we're not like Pokemon. Okay. He's not like, <laughs> you know, this is, he's not Mewtwo. Okay. <laughs> there's no, there's no person like that. And I think that he's really carved his niche to be in that position where he does seem like the world's leader in back pain. And he's had tremendous contributions to, you know, back pain science. He's, you know, he kind of wrote the book on a lot of these things and that's great. But again, just like squat you, that information that he's created has to be tempered by new research and other perspectives and, you know, these new models that are coming out or else you just get caught in a different, kind of dogma just like subluxation dogma it's like pick your poison you're getting you know you're in a trap either way you cut it well said i think i'm gonna i'm, I'm good here i don't know about you raul any yeah. final thoughts boys um final thoughts um no i'll leave it for here we'll say it for now. <laughs> all fair all fair <laughs> yeah say it for all fair <laughs> all right hold on let me where, where, wait, wait, on. wait. Yeah, where can everyone find you? Uh, you can find me at The Rehab Cairo on Instagram. Uh, don't follow me on Twitter because I only follow boring uh, scientists on Twitter. <laughs> and I don't say anything. I literally just creep around and I look at what people are publishing. Um, so I'm not very dynamic on Twitter. Um, but you can find me at The Rehab Cairo on Instagram. That's where I post the most. Perfect. I'll link your Instagram profile to the show notes. Sweet. 